and welcome to another episode of Overdrinkers. I'm Mike Burrs, your hostess with the mostest, and today I am joined by the breathtakingly scientific Jack Kolajeski. That's right, and we are here today. We're going to be Overdrinkers, if you do not know, is a show where uh, I myself get together with a friend or friends. In this case, today, it is Monsieur Jack Kolajeski. Hello. And uh, we talk about a movie over some drinks. And today we are talking about David Lynch's uh, directorial debut, feature-length directorial debut, uh, Eraserhead. Um, and uh, as always on Overdrinkers, we have a themed beverage. And because we're talking Eraserhead, but we're also going to be having some real good Lynch talk uh, with Story Screen's uh, foremost uh, Lynch-o-maniac, uh, we're drinking coffee. We're drinking coffee. We're drinking coffee. What kind of coffee are you drinking, Jack? Black as moonlight on a on a uh, uh no, sorry. Black as midnight on a moonless night. See, I already fucked up the the whole Lynch. No, that's why people come thing. here. Yeah. And this is Just also behind the cash fence too, so you're going to be absolutely fine. Oh, perfect. This is yep. premium content. Every, people are Only paying the best. for it. Yes. Oh, great. Perfect. Um uh are we talking black? We're talking are we talking hot? Are we talking cold? Hot, are we talking black hot? coffee. Hot black coffee. You got it in a mug, or I do. I do. I have my self defense family ride for spite uh, mug here. I don't know if you can see that. Oh, yeah, I can yeah. see it. Mm-hmm. Shout out to self defense family. And is this is this a medium blend? Is this a dark roast? Are, you, are we dealing with a light? It's not decaf. This is, is uh. This is no. <laughs> what do you take me for here? I'm not I mean, a monster. I, I uh, it's a it's a Guatemalan blend, uh, ah. roasted by local roaster tracks. So oh, shout out to tracks. Very well, cool. advertisement for tracks. Yeah, I normally I'm a I'm an iced coffee drinker. Um, quarantine's really thrown a wrench in my whole routine because I pretty much will go to our local coffee shop. Shout out Bank Square, uh, sister sister shop to tracks, um, and just grab like an iced coffee pretty much every single day of my life for the past five years. And I don't do that anymore because I'm trying to limit the amount that I go outside and interact with people. So I've just been. Just making coffee at home, hot mm-hmm. coffee at home. Yeah, and for the listeners at home, we are recording this December 15th, 2019, so there's absolutely no reason for Jack to be doing this, and we also don't even know what's going to be happening that would be a reason for him to do it. Yeah, I just got a feeling that you know 2020 is going to be the kind of year where I don't want to see anyone ever go outside my house. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. I just got like this kind of like, it's just a mood, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Familia. Corona. Uh, I am doing, um, I'm an iced coffee boy and I've been making um, uh, large batches of cold brew using different uh, cold brew batches. Uh, This right now I have uh, from our good buddies over at Illuminated Coffee uh, over at Poughkeepsie Grind. Uh, Mm. They've been nice enough. I've been going in there uh, every two weeks and picking up myself two and a half pounds of pre-ground cold brew uh, grind and making myself some concentrate. So I got that with a little bit of. You don't cut it. You never cut it. You just drink it full. You on. just drink the. You drink, you drink the concentrate it full fucking. Up. Oh fuck, man! You're mainlining yeah. that. Sh- yeah, but so you're not it. drinking it full on because I can see it and you've diluted it with milk. Oh, I I put a splash of half and half in there for for color. Mm, okay, mm-hmm. if you say so, so. Cheers to you, sir. Uh, cheers, the- cheers. Yes, ching ching. Nice. Um, yeah, I, um, 
I've tried cold brew in the past. I've tried making cold brew in the past, and it's such a grind and weight dependent sort of thing that I just don't have the patience to do myself. Mm-hmm. I could just never get it right. Mm-hmm. So you get a you get a pre ground. Yeah, I usually get a pre-ground. You want to just do like a flaky, coarse, very coarse grind. We're talking like probably Mm -hmm. one level above like your regular typical coffee pot maker. And uh, I usually do about, um, you know, 5.5 quarts of uh, cold water to um, one and a quarter pound ground coffee. You mix it together really well. You seal it up and you pop that bad boy in the fridge for about 18 to 20 hours. And then you uh, strain it. And filter it twice. and Twice. Uh, twice filtered. Twice filtered. Strain and okay. then twice filtered. Yep. And then uh, you just store that bad boy. And I usually don't cut it because uh, I like to drink it straight. And then if you're kind of like, I've already had two of these, maybe my maybe, uh, wanna... maybe my third, fourth, and fifth one should be spl- should be cut. Uh, maybe you, know? you cut it down with a little, little Jameson at that point. Take the edge off, you know, if you're tweaking, yep. tweaking mm-hmm. out at home. Yeah, after, but you know, after your just, fifth cup. That's what everybody's here for, coffee talk on the over This is my drinkers. second cup of the day. Mine as well. Excellent. I got uh I went out and did my shopping for the week real quick and uh, sending out merchandise cuz we got tote bags and coffee mugs so every Saturday I go out and I send uh, whatever needs to be sent out to the post office real quick, venturing out into the world wearing my face mask and uh, hoping I don't crash my car because I finally paid off my car and I'm looking to just sell oh. it to get the fuck rid of it. There you go. I pretty much took all my savings that I've been putting towards like trying to get a house and uh, just bought the car flat out so I can just sell it and you know get like a cheaper car flat out and have that money back in my savings because money's hard to come by right now. Um, yeah. But that's not why we are here. Well, uh, it's it's thematically, uh, thematically I would say, correct, on yeah. brand. It's a little uh, nightmare world that we're living in. Um, uh, so yeah, we're talking to Racerhead. Um, this is the first Overdrinkers. Overdrinkers is pretty much uh, going to be leaning towards the cash fence uh, for the time being uh, with these uh, revival movies. So pretty much I have been asking anybody and everybody for a little while now that if they have a movie that they want to talk about, uh, let's get together and, uh, and, and talk about it. Uh, you had actually reached out to me before I was even able to hit you up with that and said that you would be into, uh, talking to Eraserhead. And I said, yes. that's really cool. I haven't watched Eraserhead since, um, the first two times I saw it in, uh, film school. Uh, uh, it is an insanely abstract film and they use it to kind of show like, you know, whatever you put on camera is going to have meaning whether or not you're looking for it or not. It's a good lesson in that. So I hadn't seen it in a bit. I am not the biggest Lynch um, connoisseur. Uh, He is a huge blind spot on me. I have only seen the first season of Twin Peaks. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of his later stuff. Uh, I'm mainly Elephant Man, Eraserhead, Dune. The Um, classics. Yeah, like the the, the older older things, Lost Highway. Uh, I am notoriously known in some film friend circles of having the astronomically bad take of thinking Mulholland Drive is not only bad, but sucks. Um, Yeah, I know. I have to revisit it. I haven't watched it in like 15 years. I'm a completely different person. So when I said that I think Mulholland Drive sucks, that's coming from like an 18-year-old. 
you know, so okay. you wouldn't listen well, to that fucking guy. I mean, to be fair, the majority of 18-year-olds probably think Mulholland Drive sucks. Right, yeah. And, and so. I get, I, I, I propose or uh, purport that I get what Lynch is doing in Mulholland Drive. It's the same thing he's doing in a lot of movies. I just think he's really bad at it in Mulholland Drive. But again, this is speaking from about a movie that I have not seen for 15 years that I barely finished uh, 15 years ago. So sure. got nothing to say about that. But everything uh, first season of Twin Peaks and before, loads of opinions, and I like it. Great. Well, we'll, we'll get those opinions out. Yeah, I think... I think generally, um, when it comes to Lynch, Twin Peaks is really what got me kind of started with that. Um, I actually was pretty late even to Twin Peaks. Um, I think I watched Twin Peaks season one and two for the first time uh, in college. So that was probably like 2010, 2011. Um, and then came back to it again. You know, it, and that was something that I, I enjoyed it a lot um, at that time. Um and was was very into it then but i think what really even put me over the edge was the return uh itself so when that came out geez what was that now like 2017 the return came out 2018 i actually can't remember off the top of my head uh Um, i I think it was 2018 because it was on your list that's right yeah it was was 2018 2018 um or no best of 2017 yeah so it was 2017 2017. you are correct yeah 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 i listen time not not really a relevant thing to well, me. Well, I don't anymore, know if you remember so. this. Uh, the thing about time is that it's a flat circle. I do remember that. If yeah. you recall, I do recall. I do recall that a yeah. certain time where that was a known absolute. Right, right. I mean, it's still a known absolute, but it's just you know got to remind yourself every once in a while. Um, but uh, so. Twin Peaks is really what got me interested in Lynch in the first place. And then over the pa- over the course of the past week, when, once we decided to do this, I kind of made sure I brushed up on on some of the, the Lynch blind spots that I did have. Because I haven't seen everything by Lynch. I'm not a Lynch expert, although I am very into his work. Um, so over the, the course of the past week, I have gone back and I've watched Inland Empire, which is one that I've been meaning to watch I've, I, I started many moons ago, but did not finish. And then I, so I, I watched that, I want to say on Monday and then I watched lost highway, which was also one that was a blind spot. And then I rewatched Eraserhead again, which I think the first time I saw that was probably 2013 or 2014. So it's been a, a few years, but I'm interested to hear from you saying that you studied it in film school. Cause it is, I can see it being a very, like, we're going to watch this in class today, film mm-hmm. school kind of movie. Yeah, it's it's a very um, you know, it was made for like ten thousand dollars. Yep. Um over the course of five years, actually. Yeah, it was it it was a labor of love, which will lead to uh my my sweet, sweet, uh spicy take on um what it means. Uh the but the that's the thing that's uh the most interesting about Eraserhead and a lot of David Lynch's stuff, uh, but most especially Eraserhead is that um you know, Lynch has kind of said that he presented it in a way, uh, he made it so abstract um, that there really is no definitive interpretation to be had of it. The film is like many art films and many art experimental films, you know, it's abstract, it's symbolic, it's impressionistic. But the thing about Eraserhead that is um, 
to me, and I think to the larger film community at large, is it is a very intuitive film. It's very much about what you yourself take into it and bring into it. When I watched this in film school when I was like 22, 23, uh, I had completely different takes of when I just watched it as, um, you know, 33-year-old, same age as Jesus Christ, still here uh, as I am today. Um, not to bring up JC or anything like that. I don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. And I'm just saying he was 33. I'm 33. We have that in common. And uh, guess what? Uh, Easter came and went and, um, you know. Nada. Yeah. You know, it, we're, we're similar in that way where, you know, we both kind of had some traumatic experiences happen over Easter when we were 33. Um, True. Yeah, you know, right. But I stayed home, and uh, I stayed inside, and he didn't. You didn't leave the cave. So, yeah, you know, whatever. Uh, now that that joke that's definitely been done um, like three, four weeks ago at the time of this recording by a lot of people uh, who are smarter than me and funnier. Uh, yeah, the film is just, um, it's very much about what you're bringing into it. Uh, I'd, I'd love to toss it over to you as far as like kind of getting your read on it first and kind of like uh, discussing... You know, just what you like about it. What was so interesting about it to you to like bring up to this other than the obvious, just kind of, you know, kind of just starting to like spread the butter of our conversation across the the piece of toast that is this podcast episode. So, yeah, I think I think you you pretty much hit the nail on the head, not only with Eraserhead, but with Lynch in general is so much of his work is much more of a mood and an atmosphere than necessarily a straightforward kind of story you know his method of storytelling is it is abstract but in a lot of ways i think one of the things that hit me on the the rewatch of Eraserhead is i think it's a little more straightforward than than i i originally uh gave it credit for i think you know a lot of lynch's work is kind of at first blush seemingly kind of like nonsense and i've seen that that sort of take that it's like just pretentious abstraction and nonsense Um, but I think there is, there are like concrete ideas there. And in many cases, not just Eraserhead, a lot of Lynch's work, relatively simple ideas that are elevated by the sense of place, the sense of mood, the sense of atmosphere, um, which is more often than not very, um, foreboding and, uh, and, and oppressive. Um, and I think, with Eraserhead and 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 with much of his work, he really nails the kind of like symbiotic relationship between artist and consumer, where the artist is creating something that obviously in their own mind has probably unique um, or specific kind of themes or, or ideas or elements. And then it's also part of the work comes from the consumer itself to apply their own sort of feelings and and ideas and emotions to that work and then pull that kind of meaning out of there. Um, And I think Lynch really does strike a good balance for those who are willing to kind of put the the thought and the effort in um, to give you enough space to, to really have a lot of room for interpretation, a lot of room for your own sort of, you know, projection onto his work to kind of like allow you to pull your own sort of meaning out of it. And I think he's also a good artist in the way that he is very unwilling to, in interviews, like post, like after the work has come out, he is not 
not willing to speak for the work itself. He let he lets the work speak for itself. Um, and he, he doesn't, he won't give any sort there's to this day, he's never like come out and said like, Oh, eraser head means this or that, or like, this is what I was thinking when I was making a racer head. Um, besides, you know, the, the ideas that he has expressed that like a lot of it was inspired by him living in Philly and, um, like that kind of experience that he had in that neighborhood that he lived in in Philly, kind of like coloring sort of a mood and an atmosphere and an, an intention that he put into that work. So, um, so yeah, I think I think all those kind of elements make it an interesting sort of art film because there is a lot of room for interpretation and because rather than like relying on specific dialogue or plot points, it is much more of like an atmospheric kind of experience. Yeah, uh, totally. It's he's his he's a very um, his attitude both uh, when he writes things and makes things. It, uh, his willingness to really have fun and go really bizarre with very uh, serious, um, very serious symbolisms, but also having fun with it and kind of being a little bit of a goofball, both when he's directing and creating stuff and also when he's talking about them is something that I think really strengthens Lynch and keeps him away from being uh, considered uh, like most abstract ex- uh, experimental expressionistic uh, directors can be which is pretentious they can come right. off as pretentious and kind of full of themselves and uh, sometimes you know a lot of the experimental films that I've been introduced to by uh, some friends and colleagues uh, really just kind of screams um, you know just uh, uh, just kind of a laziness and a a kind of reluctance to commit to something not for the sake of communicating but more reading into it that the person is unable to communicate that in a professional way and abstract is unfortunately if you can figure out how to be an abstract artist and you can really condition that and commit to it and study it and perfect it you can create something that is wholly original and almost un uh, cannot be copied by anyone else, but also abstract can also be um, very easily attained if you're just simply trying to do the least amount of something possible and then sure. allow the interpretation of the audience to really fill in uh, the blanks. Uh, Joker is a very good example of that. Um, Todd Phillips Joker, where all the did audience you really have to well hold on did you really have to go and bring up todd phillips joker on our fucking it, Eraserhead it, 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 podcast? I was, well i was thinking Leave about it out of this i was thinking about it while i was considering my take on Eraserhead, and it really just popped into my head this idea of like abstract art being something where it's like yeah you can it, it's and i don't mean to be condescending to abstract artists there are talented abstract expressionistic experimental artists both in video and in multiple media platforms that are out there and are respected and justly so. But we all know the idea of an abstract art looking at it and being like, it looks like somebody just threw a paintbrush, just threw a single paintbrush with red paint on it at like a black screen and then they just like frame that up and that's it. Like it is something that without a deeper value to it is something that can be executed similarly uh, by doing absolutely nothing at all. And the good art is the stuff that comes out of, you can actually see the effort and the thought that went into it. Even if the effort and the thought was minimal, you can see that it's there. And sometimes you can kind of obviously see through your interpretation that there's nothing really there. And that kind of led me to think about like one of my biggest problems with Joker was 
that the audience was asked to do most of the work. All of these videos, everybody praising the movie for what it's doing. The movie is not doing those things. The movie is not making a comment on mental illness. You're watching it and making the comment that you think the movie's making on it. They never say anything about mental illness in there on a positive or a negative. Well, He's just a mentally I'm... ill person. Yeah, yeah, there's no like actual like thematic. I'm steering this conversation away no, from yeah, Joker yeah, we as can, fast we as can, possible. We can I'm pulling the e break on this. We can move away from Joker. Sake. It's yeah. absolutely fine. Um, but when going back to Lynch, like and and that idea of a, an abstract kind of art, like I think the reason that Lynch for me succeeds is because he is, you know, you can have something that that's abstract, but you, you like you were saying, you kind of need to anchor it in ways. I think that's why Twin Peaks really speaks to a lot of people because like at its at its core twin peaks is a kind of noir almost soap opera kind of detective drama story and there is a very simple core idea there but the abstraction kind of percolates under the surface and if you've only seen season season one yeah it goes further well and that's like especially with the return when i watched the first season you know i had heard about twin peaks as one does for the past you know, 30, 30 years, years now yeah. and just being like really looking forward to it and saving it and holding off on it. And then finally diving in, I was like, this is the show. And it's just very soap opery. It's very cheesy for the sake of cheesy sake. It's very funny. Um, I would yeah. say like, especially with, and again, I've only seen the first season. Uh, it's much more funnier than it is. I think anything else. Uh, in my from my in my opinion, I find the thing to be more of a just like straight out comedy than a, like an expressionistic interpretation of what it is that I'm that he is going for in that season and what the show eventually does become. Because I've sure. heard stories. Luckily, I still have absolutely nothing spoiled for me in Twin Peaks at all. I know absolutely nothing, but I've also heard it's kind of hard to spoil it if you it'd don't be watch hard to the spoil. show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd yeah. be hard to spoil. I mean. I think that's, I mean, and Twin Peaks is 100% Lynch's most mainstream work. Um, I mean, well, besides uh, the um, the Straight Story, that's the Disney one, right? Uh, that's a great movie. Have you seen Straight uh, Story? That's it's not not that's not the one. What's it called? Straight Story, the Disney movie. With yeah, the, it is. That is the, that is the yeah. Yeah. It's a great movie. Yeah, that is that, that, that is, is yeah. I wanted to watch that one before <laughs> this podcast, but. No, it's, you're fucking with me. What is it? The straight story. No, you are 100% correct. Okay. Yeah. It's always hard to tell sometimes. Uh, just, 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 just you just need to naturally go with that. I'm not fucking with you at all times <laughs> because then I win. No, I've every fallen time. for that. I've yeah. fallen for that trap before. Um, yeah. I would also, I would argue, uh, I think Dune is probably his most mainstream, uh, straightforward thing. Cause even Dune has its weird lynchisms. And I sure. I rewatched Dune because I haven't seen Dune since I was a kid, and I've been meaning to rewatch it because uh, we're getting ready for that that sweet Denis Dune action mm-hmm. later on this year. Uh, I wanted to rewatch it for this podcast too. Um, and uh, my hot take on Dune, having seen it for the first time in probably twenty years, as um, uh, a weird movie, weird. Well- yeah, I mean, maybe Dune is his most like big budget studio project because right. it's like a huge like sci-fi thing. But Dune itself is not a very mainstream. No, property. and that's that's one of the interesting things about bringing that. That's why you know Trzaski had like so uh, such a hard time making it, and that's why 
they're kind of having Jodorowsky? a hard Yes, sorry. Uh, that's why they're also having a hard time making it right now. I realized I mispronounced his name and was just like, it's been five seconds. Just keep going. No, uh, it's okay. It's uh, one of those don't worry, things. Don't save your emails, listeners. These yeah. are the premium listeners, so they're yeah. going to get on your case. Yeah, I know. Uh, the, the, their voices will be heard. And that's the same thing with Denis Villeneuve with... Um, with Blade Runner, it's like, you know, they've been trying to make a Blade Runner sequel or prequel sure. for years. And he kind of comes on and he can kind of bring this energy to it that's going to allow it to carry on. And that's kind of the same thing that Lynch did. Uh, he kind of took over and, you know, they were about to not do it. And then he was able to just kind of be like, well, what if we just did this weird shit? And yeah. everybody just kind of went along with it. And it, as weird as the movie is, like, it actually does kind of straighten out the a lot of the oddities of the book. I haven't read the book myself, but I've read some cliff notes and it's a yeah. weird book. I'm choosing to maintain my Dune virginity until Villeneuve's movie comes out. And then maybe I'll go back and watch Lynch's mm-hmm. Dune afterwards. Uh, Cause I, I do not know anything about Dune besides there's a big worm. That's all I've got as far wow. as Dune goes. So I'm going to just go with Villeneuve's take on it first and then I'll work my way backwards from there. I mean, um, that's you're, you're in a position like that's always my thing too is yeah, if, if you're in a position where you haven't seen an original and a remake is coming out and the original is beloved or regarded in some way, it is right. absolutely your call. Do you want to experience this for the first time as an adult? Like there's a lot of movies that I'm happy that I got to see. Like I recently watched Philadelphia and Driving Miss Daisy for the first time. As an adult, if I had watched mm-hmm. those growing up, I probably would have had a completely different interaction with them and could have been soiled by nostalgia and stuff like that. And that's the sure. same thing. One of my biggest movies that I've never seen the entirety of is Lawrence of Arabia because I'm waiting for just the right time to watch it on the biggest screen possible and really take it in as a full-fledged adult understanding this movie, this epic, one of the greatest movies of all time. And you can do that in the different way as well. We are like, I want to see what this is as an original story that I know nothing about from this director that I really like. And then I'll go and watch the original by another director. I really yeah. like and compare. I, I'm not someone who normally rewatches things very often. There's, there's a f- relatively few movies that I've, that I go back to that I watch time and time again. Um, because I think that watching, you can only watch something for the first time once and um, that's why I'm also kind of a big proponent of, you know, the method in which you, you watch something for the first time. Um, I think that's kind of a special thing and you can never get that back once, once you've taken it away. But, con- you know, sort of conversely to that, I think bringing it back to Lynch, Lynch's movies do really reward multiple viewings because they are somewhat abstract. And I think the first time you're taking something by Lynch in, like, it is... You're just your mind is just trying to like keep up with processing what's going on, um, but when you go back and rewatch it, I think this is kind of what hit me again with Eraserhead. Like you sort of uh, you you have generally like okay, this is the i the 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 basic idea that's going on here. I know generally what happens from point A to point B. Now let me try to just more so appreciate sort of the minutia, the texture that's going on. And I think going back again to like that idea of abstract art. And the line of kind of pretentiousness, and I think why Lynch is really good at towing that line is because he puts a lot of texture and detail, and not only that, like humor, like you you brought up with Twin Peaks, like especially that first season of Twin Peaks, that is, it is, it's the charm in the character, I think, like when you, especially I think with the first season of Twin Peaks, um, 
that is the thing that people latch on to. Like people latch on to those characters, especially Dale Cooper. Um, and, and many of the, the characters, um, Twin Peaks is, is full bursting at the seams with really charismatic, interesting, tragic side characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them, Jack Nance, uh, who plays, who plays Pete, uh, Pete Martell on, on Twin Peaks is Henry in Eraserhead. So, uh, someone that Lynch had worked with before. And I think Henry in Eraserhead is really the anchor character that the viewer can, and he is, he is somewhat passive in his role in the movie. So he is almost kind of the, the audience surrogate of just like Henry is just kind of wide eyed sort of observing and taking in everything that's happening around him. Um, and I think that's, that's what I think makes Eraserhead really work as something that has kind of stood the test of time is that even on that shoestring budget, Lynch was able to create such an atmosphere with Eraserhead, such a feeling of dread and tension. And I think that's the other thing that I really want to talk about on this podcast is what Eraserhead is for horror and what it did for horror, um, especially coming out when it did in the 70s. Like, um, It's such a different take on horror, you know, because there's not really necessarily any moment of tension breaking like that is kind of the core idea of horror of like build the tension and then release the tension lynch kind of only ever builds the tension and like lets that sort of tension just sort of seethe there forever without it ever kind of like coming to i guess you could you could say like at the end of the movie there is like a tension breaking moment um but it really is just like dread building on dread building on dread and i think that's something that You've seen a lot of movies come back to in sort of like the sort of like quote unquote modern elevated horror. Uh, it's become a, a big thing to have these like long sort of drawn out, quiet, dialogueless scenes that focus more on building that atmosphere and letting that dread sort of percolate. And I think Eraserhead is is kind of maybe, you know, other examples, but like one of the earlier examples of really achieving that kind of uh, uh atmosphere i mean the movie is very much uh you know uh cabinet of dr caligari pretty much created uh the horror genre and Mm -hmm. nosferatu and all of these movies that slowly came after that even metropolis certain scenes in that in a way like a lot of these movies kind of continued the horror genre until we started getting you know more into like the 50s and 60s with some even stranger stuff and you know, and then we we kind of land on the, you, you're you're sitting where 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 Eraserhead comes out. You're kind of sitting on the cusp where the slasher genre is right around the corner, and right. the late '70s and throughout the '80s are about to be dominated by this. Before the '90s, when horror started kind of more going into the kind of more kind of poltergeisty, ghosty kind of stuff, and then that brought us into the aughts with torture porn. And then right. uh, all of a sudden we kind of came back to the ghosty paranormal slasher kind of things uh, in the tens and then in the late tens uh, getting into that more kind of artistic abstract art that is more indicative of things like Eraserhead and like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari through which A24 and um, 
similar uh, distributors are kind of finding these movies and these artists that are creating horror on this Mm -hmm. kind of more artistic, intuitive, abstract level. Um, And so, like, yeah, Eraserhead is insanely uh, a horror movie uh, hearkening back to kind of the techniques uh, that were utilized when horror and film in general was still like a silent matter. And it's Mm -hmm. kind of utilizing that with uh, a groundbreaking 100% 100% world-changing uh, sound mixing. Uh, yes. In, it is, uh, in watching it this time and having studied sound um, much more than the last time that I saw it and having studied editing uh, much more, it is just a mind-bogglingly well, a mind-bogglingly well-made movie. It is yes. very insane that this is something that could be done uh, so seemingly effortlessly but also has so much uh, heart and so much thought and so much precision and effort put into it that is on full display if you just take a moment to kind of step back from the lens that you're looking at it through of just taking in the art and the story and really kind of look at, well, that means they placed the camera there with the intention of knowing they were going to cut there because then they needed this and then they need It's a lot of fun. And the fact that it is so... Um, uh, masterfully made but also is so funny in certain parts is the thing that again like lynch that just keeps bringing me in you know the the salad mixing scene i think is one of the funniest things i have ever seen oh yeah um that whole that whole family that whole family scene is great the chicken stuff is great uh i have a very tough tummy um i watch a lot of really rough horror movies Uh i watch a lot of really weird stuff this is a movie that genuinely makes me upset like it it makes my Physically and emotionally, um, everything with the baby is just, for the love of fucking God, tone it down. And this is kind of a thing that you're talking about of that he's constantly building the dread and the tension. He's constantly building tension without a release, which is what creates dread, um, which is something me and Robbie Anderson, friend of the show, uh, recently discussed about Halloween and how John Carpenter kind of utilized realistic tendencies to communicate fear in a way that... Uh, if you do it long enough, it turns into dread where the tension, even though there is a release, it doesn't do the same thing. It just makes you more afraid. Uh, There's no relief. Yeah. Alien is another movie that very much does that same thing. And also Terminator, the first Terminator. It's right. There are these things where it's like different genres of just like horror, sci-fi action that all have a horror element where the tension and the release is very much a part of that. And in Eraserhead, um, He's constantly building the tension, and the way that he stops building tension is he just cuts to another scene without any explanation or execution of the previous one, which, one, lends to the nightmarish kind of otherworldly, is this real, what is real, What is any right. of this real nature of what makes Eraserhead so much fun to pick apart. But also, like you said, it's building that dread step by step by step until you finally get to what I think is the the hand finally going on the relief valve of this tire that is about to explode, which is when he starts mm-hmm. cutting open with the scissors, the scissors. Yes. And you are just yeah. like, ah, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and you have no idea what's going to happen. And there's no way you could possibly predict what he's going to do next. Yes. With all of that. All right. But let's step back before we get to that, the baby cutting moment. Cause there, there are a By couple of things that you, you brought up there that I want to definitely like dig into more. The first being the sound, and sound Lynch himself 
um, did a lot of the editing and sound recording work on Eraserhead and has been very much um, in control of the sound on on a lot of his work yeah. throughout his his catalog. Like sound is huge for He's, Lynch. It, that's uh, a lot of directors. Um, the masterful ones. The uh, the I'm trying to think of an exact word, um, but just like the the savants essentially who write yeah. their own stuff, direct their own stuff, try to produce their own stuff to have a little bit more control. Many of them also either do editing, they also do the cinematography, they also do the sound or something like that. And Lynch sound it's, is very much a part of I think everything that makes his stuff so special. I mean, it's what makes an auteur, right? Is yes, who auteur, just, yes. Who really has like a singular vision on all aspects of a film because there's just so many components that make a film what it is, the whole the whole picture. And when you have someone – and, you know, watching the credits on Eraserhead is really fun because like it's a very small list of names um, and Lynch is heavily involved with mm-hmm. all of it. Uh, that's um, another reminder to our listeners and everybody out there. Watch credits. They're part of the movie. Just – Well, at this, you know, at the same time, like I understand – listeners who have kind of been turned off by watching credits because the majority of like if you go see a marvel movie the credits are 10 minutes long mm-hmm. and there's thousands upon thousands of names and like that's fine too i mean they've they've kind of created a culture where you're uh forced to watch the credits if you want to see 100 percent of the movie which i think is is fine too um but it is interesting going back and, and seeing like smaller budget productions and, and being able to see like okay this is going by at a at a rate at which I can actually read all the names on the screen, mm-hmm. um, and there's it's a little more meaningful there. But um, uh, the sound in this movie just lends to that that atmosphere, like the the sound the, the it's it's the ominous whooshing, right? It's become like a, a meme for yep. like Lynch's work is, and I, I I read something that you know he originally was working on a different sort of student film for a script that he had written um it's called garden garden bed i want to say um which became Eraserhead through kind of like production was uh from there but that original idea was sort of you know lynch um originally was a painter so he was painting and kind of heard like a large gust of wind sort of as he was painting. And that's sort of like the movement of the wind and the sound of the wind combined with the painting that he was making sort of like was his sort of eureka moment for, I think, a lot of his film work. Um, so, so much of this movie, which we, I don't think we've actually like said much about the actual like core plot of this movie. But the majority of the movie is takes place in a singular apartment um, the character Henry um, has a girlfriend at the beginning of the movie who he finds out through that family scene that we mentioned is pregnant. And then much of the movie is him living in this teeny tiny little apartment with his wife and their child who is represented by this kind of like disfigured sort of like fetus looking thing. Um, and like that idea is something that's that's pervasive in a lot of Lynch's work. It's it's one of his like sort of reoccurring thematic ideas of this like this domestic sort of horror. Um this idea of like just feeling sort of trapped in your own sort of home, just living with your your family sort of thing. Um and that kind of like tension of I think the core ideas here of of Henry just being 
just this dissatisfaction within that domestic environment and that sort of like that that tension of just being there with his wife and the baby and the baby constantly crying and the idea of like that sort of like um, urban sort of living is is also core to that idea and the sound there is there's just constantly this sort of electrical hum that comes from that urban situation and then the constant like sort of whooshing of the wind in the background just sort of just leads to this sort of oppressive environment that he's in yeah the it's the 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 take on the movie the most uh kind of uh the the take that's out there the most is you know this kind of um americanized uh lifestyle of the mm-hmm. average male and it's like you get married you meet a girl you get her pregnant you get married you have a kid uh you hate your job you have a uh, yeah. very uncomfortable meeting her parents. Yes, and like you know, you're not making enough money, and you're lying to people about your work, and uh, you're you're thinking about like there's lust in there with the neighbor, and yep. you know you're you're talk you're you're watching some like you know ball sack cheek lady that lives in your radiator squish gigantic sperm, you know, typical average American male yeah experiences. Uh, but I and I. That is very much kind of like a thing that's on the front. And David Lynch has said like that is an interpretation that was very much, you know, something that was a part of while we were making it and like considering it and looking at it and discussing it. He has said that um, he has not seen or read anyone that has actually matched up with the interpretation that he has of it, of not when he was creating it, but when it was finally finished and he watched it and kind of his interpretation of you know, his experience in making it and watching it. Um, And my interpretation of the whole thing, very, very simply uh, from just watching it this time, I very much, the first time I watched it kind of had that American life kind of uh, growing up, having to do this ordinary job, ordinary day, kind of uh, the, the, the dissatisfaction that you're talking about, which um, is insanely well done in there. Uh, I was reading it this time, kind of looking at it as uh, a way that uh, how artists who are forced to create art and have this art inside of them that they need to do, but the world is kind of not really into it, regardless of how weird it is. They want them to be a little bit more normal, how it constrains their relationships. Very much kind of like my same pull on Mother. Um, sure. Darren Aronofsky's yeah. mother, where it's like the baby is in in Eraserhead. The the child is like representative of this kind of deformed version of art that is calling to him in the night and making him get up and making him have to. Is like you have to do it. You have to do it. And and the and the wife can't take it anymore. And it's like you have to. Uh, you just need to deal with this. I'm gonna go away. Just get this out of your system. You know, there's a lot of different uh, aspects to it. Of uh, you know, the uh, the outside world being the neighbor, uh, being interested in him uh, as an artist. But then when she sees how weird his art can be, when she sees his head, he is the art that she's just disgusted by him. And the same thing with um, the radiator, uh, big cheek chipmunk woman, um, with her being like, uh, heaven is fine. Which is this idea of like, you know, everything's fine in heaven. You could die and get rid of all of this nightmare and leave. Right. Which is, uh, which is a take with this heaven is fine is like heaven is like fine is heaven. 
your art can be fine. It doesn't have to be something that fulfills you. It doesn't have to be something that changes everything. It doesn't have to be the thing that you think that it can be. It can just be fine. You right. can just make fine art and all of this stressful stuff will go away. And so that was kind of a take that I was mulling over that I kind of hit about halfway through this rewatch and then kind of thinking back and then going, kind of adding that lens to how I was watching it. And it was a lot of fun. Like the more and more you're yeah. talking about it, I'm considering, you know, certain aspects of it, like the whining and the crying and the, you know, the, the idea that all of these potted plants don't have pots. I love that. You know, that's such a good like little detail in the in the production design yeah. of their apartment. Mm-hmm. And like yeah. when they're like, do you, like, you're going to have to get married and have this kid. The kids already had the kids already here. You have no choice in the matter. The art is there. You cannot control that, but you can control getting married. You can control what you're going to be doing other than the art. And his kind of reaction to that is very much like, yeah, sure. OK, yeah, no, no, I'll get married. Yeah. It's like yeah. that's the kind of like. Because I'm expected to do that, but this kind of need and pull to do this kind of otherworldly thing that might seem disgusting and um, and just disgusting is the perfect word for it. Just something disgusting and scary to other people, but it's a part of you and, and you don't even maybe understand that. It was a read that I was right. getting off of it that I was having a lot of fun kind of like massaging around. Yeah, I like that a lot. And I think, you know, that's that speaks again to the kind of the the how an abstract piece like a racer head can be really powerful and, and long lasting is because it allows for that takes. And even the, you know, the idea of David Lynch creating the film and then stepping back and like watching it back and being able to take his own impression out of his own art. Yeah. Like th- again, that he, he creates something that like stands for itself and it becomes something else. Not only when, he watches it back, but when anybody watches it back, it becomes something, it morphs and it can change. Mm-hmm. And there's enough room there where all those imp- interpretations can be separately valid. But also it is, it's not so abstract that it's, it, it falls into the line of pretension where there's just, it's, it's, there's so much nothingness to it that of course you can pull your own yeah. interpretation out of it because there's nothing, you know, it's, it, it, it has just that, uh, uh, it threads the needle and has just that amount of space for it to be concrete and abstract at the same time. Yeah. You had mentioned earlier the idea of like, uh, Lynch anchors certain things with like his humor or like with certain kind of, uh, genres and stuff like that can help kind of anchor his more abstract, uh, tendencies with film. And I think that, uh, in watching Eraserhead and Dune, uh, very recently, a thing that he does is he actually like, especially in Eraserhead, and I'll use that as an example because that's the topic of this episode. Uh-huh. Um, the baby is very much an anchor for any, um, for any, uh, uh, take that you can have on this movie it uh, and i think the best way to start developing a concept for what you believe that you are experiencing with this or even to go so far as like what you think the movie's about to you uh i think should start with the baby and the baby is that anchor that once you go well what does the baby represent does the baby represent a baby and then it kind of goes off into everything else about fatherhood and being an American male in society in the seventies and like what, what they wanted you to be. And then if you just like change it and kind of go, well, all right, the baby is art. And then everything just kind of fills off of that. And he's got these little tiny things, uh, in his, in his things. Like, uh, I'm trying to, like, I watched, uh, on your 
Uh, lovely recommendation. I did watch What Did Jack Do? Oh, good. Yes. And that has, an, and even just for like, you know, a 15 minute uh, short, that has one of the most amazing anchors, which in my read on it, the anchor is the fact that Lynch and the monkey are not on screen at all during the entire thing, except for the very first shot. And it's it's a thing that's like you get over you mean that, together together on, on screen, screen together, together. Yes. and it's that's yeah. what allows for the oddness of the editing, the oddness of everything else, and it you can slowly just start kind of building off of that, and the way he utilizes that without having um, too many cutaways of them together is that you're constantly aware that this is a movie. That it's not right. real and it heightens everything else because you start having fun with it. They're not trying to make it look like the chimp is actually talking. They want you to know that that is someone's mouth right there. But then they also want you to realize that every time he turns, like they have recorded that as well. There's a level of effort in it that yes. it just kind of really kind of impresses you, but also makes you realize that like he's just having some fun because the whole right. thing is so absurd. Right, and that fun, that humor is is pervasive in his work, even in something like Eraserhead, which is so dreadful. Yes. Like you know, it's it, you know he never loses that amount of humor, and I think that's something that makes all of his work work well. Um, and I think like you know we haven't talked too much about surrealism. We've talked about abstraction in his mm-hmm. work, but so much of his work has that sort of dreamlike nature. Um, and I think it with, with Eraserhead. All of it feels dreamlike, but there's also dreams within the film as well. Like, you know, there's there's two specific dream um, scenes that I can think of or like kind of implied dream themes of right. uh, scenes. One with the there's kind of the, the, the lady in the radiator, sort of the like the night emissions uh, scene, <laughs> where kinda, Jesus. which like I think I, I really like your kind of art interpretation, because if you're thinking, you know, he is trying to create this art and he's. Or he has this art inside him, right? And the art that he's produces is kind yes. of like malformed baby because that's the art that's expected out of him. The art that's still inside of him, which you could see the lady in the radiator as kind of his like muse sort of thing. Yep. He's always like sitting and staring at the radiator yes. and, and like trying to get this lady to come out. Like and and part of it, like he's there's a scene where he's sitting and looking at the radiator. And the baby starts crying and like the the stage is starting to come into focus in the radiator. And then the baby starts crying and it kind of like goes away. Mm-hmm. But then later you get a scene where like you actually have the lady singing um, in heaven. Everything is fine. And then that's where like the sperm kind of like starts dropping all around mm-hmm. her. And she's sort of stomping on that sperm. Mm-hmm. And then he wakes up and he's like there's sperm in the bed with him, which to me implies sort of like a you know, uh, a, a nocturnal emission sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then again, later, um, like his head sort of ex- like in the, the dream, his head sort of explodes and launches out the window. And then you have this kid pick up the head. The kid brings it to a store or like a little shop front. And that's when they turn his head into erasers, which is another kind of interpretation of like the sort of internal fear that, that Lynch might be trying to convey of like, I don't want my art to just become this like, nothing sort of like commercialized sort of product right this like just very basic sort of like like you know mass-produced sort of product and like when they just 
take a take a piece of his head and turn it into erasers for number two pencils like that could be just such a sort of commonplace sort of like, kind of thing yep. exactly yeah. that's yeah it, that's like the pull that i was having while i was like kind of walking around today uh doing like the things that i had to do venturing out into the wild wild 2020 landscape was just kind yes. of going over in my head all of these different kind of interpretations of different aspects of a racer head with that lens on it of and uh, the whole time I was doing it I was just like kind of smiling and I was like yeah that works that's cool and it's because yeah. there is no there is no definite um article to the thing there is right. no tangible way to go this is correct and this is wrong and because it's so expertly done and left so open to intuition and what you bring to it because that is something about abstract art that is not just throwing a paintbrush against a canvas, that there has to be anchors and there has to be a balance to everything so that when someone starts putting absolutely any wacky wild idea to it, all of the other pieces still fit that puzzle. They all kind of turn around and can fit into it, which is what makes Eraserhead, dare I say, uh, one of the best movies ever made. It is really it's definitely a masterwork. It is yeah. really interesting how you know how how unmade the movie feels while also being so well made. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, something that's common across Lynch's work to the uh, you know the the surrealism, the dreamlike quality of it is it really feels like Lynch you know, with Eraserhead, with uh, What Did Jack Do, with a lot of Twin Peaks, he is very much capturing that sort of dreamlike feel. And that is so much like the dialogue of, of Lynch's movies and work always feels kind of drawn out, you know, and kind of like there is sort of a just, uh, it's sort of like, you know, throwing a punch uh, it feels like underwater when you're in a dream. Like that's almost how his dialogue feels in a lot of his work. There is sort of, you know, that kind of like, especially like the family scene, which is probably the most like dialogue heavy scene mm -hmm. in the movie. Like everything just is sort of stilted and people just kind of take their time saying things. There's like a almost lackadaisical nature to all of it. And that's in what did Jack do as well? Like that's just a conversation between two parties and all of it just feels just so weird there's like a just an inherent strangeness to it um and i think that kind of atmosphere that he's creating that sort of like dreamlike nature um is really unique to lynch and i think a lot of other directors obviously have tried to like capture that sort of feeling as well but playing with all the different like themes of um you know some of the domestic horror sort of stuff some of the like creating art sort of stuff like doing that through the lens of something that feels so dreamlike also lends to like the many interpretations because what do you do with dreams right you just you can just try to interpret them yes and really like all movies all work is in itself you could see sort of the reflection to like dreams like these ideas come from our heads mm -hmm. They're edited together in such a way like dreams or like scenes start and end and there may not be like a direct connection between them. You know, you could say that with, you said that about Eraserhead itself, like scenes end and just move on to the next one without a sort of connection because it to, to lend to sort of that, I like that, that sense, that feeling of, um, uh, you know, just being a little bit like, uh, um, uh, 
confusion, sort of. It's not really the word I'm looking for, but um, Disintor- disorientation. Kind disorientation. Of stuff, yeah. Yes, that is the yes, mm-hmm. yes. That is the kind that that is the word that I'm looking yeah. for. Um, you got auteur earlier when I was like savant. So yeah, yeah. That's that's yeah. why it's a two person podcast. Yeah, yeah, we help yeah. each other out. Yeah, I think um, it's I I think it's one of the interesting things about it is that I think that anybody on any level of how you watch a movie from the yo what's to the to the, like the film critics, you know. Anybody yeah. can kind of look at it and go, so he's doing something here that I'm probably not supposed to understand and I'm supposed to try and figure it out. Some people don't like that because they don't like uh, to have to think for their movies, sure. um, which again is something that Joker thinks it's doing, but it's doing it in the wrong way. Uh, but that kind of creates with Eraserhead, it's kind of almost like this build your own movie kit. Where it's kind of, like yeah. you you open the box and that's the opening title and you spill it out onto the table. And every time you spill out the box, every time someone spills out the box, whether it was back in the 70s in a movie theater or just a couple days ago in my living room, the pieces fall out in the same order. But the way that you're kind of looking at the different angles of the pieces kind of at the end of the day allows you to put together a different a different picture. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that's absolutely. that's kind of what I mean by like it's it's it feels unmade in that way and the fact that it's also very well made and obviously well crafted by someone who knows what the fuck they're doing, which is just so good to see. You love to see a movie where someone knows what they're doing, unlike Joker. Uh it's it's a it's a really interesting like puzzle arrangement of all of these different things where so many things could go wrong at any point, but because Lynch kind of just does have that lackadaisical attitude that you were talking about and this kind of thing of not really taking himself seriously, but being serious about the craft makes for just an amazing experience of a movie. Yeah. It's really uncanny in a lot of ways. Um, There's a perfect line from uh, Twin Peaks, the return. So if you'll forgive me this, it's not a spoiler, but I think it really like captures a lot of just generally, Lynch's work and part of what makes the like you've probably heard a lot about the return not having seen it is it the can, return I, can is I try and guess the the line you can I don't is I don't, it is yeah, it go the for it. dicks before chicks line uh no mm. no okay. close close that's also a very good line yep. standout line uh the line is we live inside a dream but who is the dreamer ah. and I think that's like that really captures like that idea of like you know Lynch is creating this thing but like who really is the one that's like linking these pieces together Mm -hmm. um, is one way you can interpret it. I think there's a lot of flexibility there, but, um, but yeah, it, it, it really is. And the point I was going to make about the return as well is like, that thing is a unicorn because going back to the idea of like art and creating art and, and you know, this anxiety around like, I have a specific kind of art that I want to make, but maybe it's, Maybe my art is the disfigured thing, or maybe the thing that I need to make to be successful is the the disfigured thing. I think you could read it either way. Yes. Like maybe like I want to make this weird sort of abstract thing, and to me it's something special, but everybody else is going to view yes. it as a monster. Yep. Or the thing that I need to make in order to just fit the mold that people expect, or society expects, or like the industry expects, is to me a monster. Yeah. Um, or and even. I could try and make something as ordinary as a baby, but 
I'm fucked up. And no matter what happens, anything that comes out of me, whether it is physical or a thought or a word is going to be wrong. I'm going to fuck it up. And it's going to be something that is going to scare everyone. It's going to scare me. It's going to ruin everything. (laughs) So I probably shouldn't commit to it. Yes. Yeah. The, my wife is going to hate it. She's, She's going to hate the it. Neighbor, the hot neighbor is going to hate it. It's Everyone's no going to hate like it. I'm going to hate it. Um, but, uh, you know, the return is like, he was able to make that 25 years after Twin Peaks wrapped up. And he was able to make it basically however he wanted. Like he had carte blanche. He and, and Frost were able to like do it exactly how they wanted it to and it's kind of unbelievable that they got away with doing it that way um it's kind of unbelievable that like you know their fingerprints are all over it and like there is no sort of studio interference with for something that came out in 2017 is is really really special it's uh yeah it twin peaks is definitely something um to me personally in my experience of uh existence uh, Twin Peaks and uh, Doctor Who are two things that like I really wish that I had been a part of this kind of culture when all sure. of this cool stuff was going on like uh, I, like but I have those things like I'm a huge Star Wars Star Trek uh, Harry Potter you know uh, even I would even go so far as like the experience I have with my my Hunger Game friends before the movies yeah. came out when those books came out and it was like yo have you read these and to be like you mean the the weird like young adult like uh battle royale like ripoffs i'm like no yeah like they're really good you should read them and then you read them and you're like yo these are like really good and then they make the movies and it becomes this phenomenon where everybody's just like yeah but the books though and everyone's like yeah whatever jennifer lawrence and it's like yeah but the books though like it's there's a, a a process that only that you can only have the experience if you're actually there when it's happening and with twin sure, peaks it's the zeitgeist, I, yeah, with right? twin peaks i completely missed the boat I should have caught. Yeah. I should have jumped on earlier so that I really could have been a part of that conversation when the return started a couple years ago. And it's kind of the same with Doctor Who, where it's like you know when Doctor Who came back in like the early aughts, um, it's like I wish that I could have been a part of something like that. But it's just such a big commitment to get into Doctor Who being lengthwise and a lot to take in, and Twin Peaks very much being something like, am I ready to? ingest this right now and give it the proper attention that it needs which is why when i watched the first season i was going to start the second season i actually watched the first episode of the second season but that's right around the time the theater was opening and i was like Mm -hmm. i'm not going to be able to commit to this i'm not going to be able to sit in front of a tv for 45 minutes per episode and just focus on what's going on and take it in because my mind's going to be everywhere else i have to get to a vacation point in my mind to really be able to just kind of take all of my clothes off and just and just swim into the get a cup of coffee, swim into the mm-hmm. goo of David Lynch's like nightmare that is Twin Peaks. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting because Twin Peaks had sort of multiple zeitgeists as well. Like when the original came out, it was huge. You know, like everybody wanted to know who killed Laura Palmer. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it was it was a phenomenon, and and it was like it, it and it it broke into the mainstream in a way that for Lynch it was pretty, you know, it still is kind of unprecedented that it got as big as it did. And then season two is infamous. I I don't know how much you know about season two, but it infamously the network basically asked Lynch and Frost to do a lot more with season two. 
they kind of pressured them to reveal like who the killer was earlier than they wanted to and, and like it, it it sort of all fell apart and lynch ultimately like kind of stepped away from it and then came back for the finale so like there's a lot in season two that is was wrenched away from the the total creative control that they had in season one that made season one so special and that's why season two really falls apart in a lot of ways and becomes it loses the craft like yeah it, it, yeah it it falls into the pretension because they're just throwing a lot of ideas at the wall. Um, uh, Dam- Damien uh, Masterson wrote a good um, article for the website about Twin oh for stories. Yeah, yeah. Damien Masterson yes. wrote a phenomenal piece on that. Yeah, and he he gets into that idea um, of how like things sort of fell apart around season two and how Lynch stepped away from it and and has uh, in retrospect talked in in. Um, uh, interviews how like season two is is an abomination kind of it, it is season two really is like the baby of like this is what had to like come out of me and that's to that's meet the, this expectation that's the other take is that the baby is a uh, forced art when you are forced to create yeah. art in a way that maybe you didn't want to make it but you have to go along with it because that's something that's going on uh do i think that that's something that was maybe on lynch's mind all the way back then, possibly not. Again, do I think any of these things are what was on Lynch's mind? Who could say? It really removes a thing that I love and that you know I love with movies is artist uh, interpretation and like where like t- considering, um, you know, uh, considering the pencil and not just the canvas and being like, where right. is this coming from? What what this is one of the coolest things about the Steven Spielberg retrospective that I've started is really I got like a couple biographies on him and I'm reading up on like how his childhood was and it's really just given me that sweet, sweet context. And now as I'm (laughs) watching his TV movies and his first earlier stuff, I'm like, holy shit, I can see exactly where like Indiana Jones was inside this really weird episode of some Martin Lando pilot that he made that they made into a TV movie because it was so bad it didn't get picked up. But you can see this Indiana Jones aspect in there and you can see Jurassic Park and Duel and you can see like uh, of all things like the the better parts of E.T. in like the first 15 minutes of Jaws like you're just like you're being able to kind of contextualize where the artist is coming from and especially with directors it's so much fun especially if they're not writing their own stuff because then they're taking somebody else's vision and morphing it with their own experiences and their own vision to kind of interpret what they think the the screenplay is supposed to look like and then we the audience get to see that final vision of these visions meshed together and i think that that's you know you can do that very well and create something that's good or you can have like a weird like reptar baby that's like you know just like kind of not that much fun to look at and it sounds really bad yeah yeah and I, th- I thought think it was interesting that um, you brought up Darren Aronofsky and Mother before mm-hmm. because I think that was like the greatest sin of Darren Aronofsky in that movie is he went around on his press tour and he would not shut the fuck up about that movie. Yes. Largely, I think because audiences they wouldn't leave him alone. so negatively yeah. towards it. Yeah. But like that's something that I think Lynch really does well is he gets pressed on these things and he just refuses outright to reveal like what like the baby itself, the prop. To this day. Lynch has not specified how they made that prop or what that prop is from. He will not talk about it. And I think that that adds to like sort of the mystery and the kind of grotesque nature of it is like looking at it, there is an uncanny 
nature to it where it's just so like greasy and like wet looking and just deeply upsetting to look at especially when he like when they cut it open you know to go back to that that's also like when he he starts like stabbing the inside that's like a moment in me where i fucking die like it is one of the most (laughs) upsetting things on every possible level that i can feel and it's just like i was watching it i was just like god damn it i fucking hate this but you also it's love effective. it because it's effective yeah like that's yes that's the best the best stuff in movies is the stuff that really gets me and makes me change not just emotion but just makes me go like no because that yeah. means that something is being well done yeah absolutely you know it's it's that all of it it's it's the effectiveness that it can have you know a, a, a work that inspires you to put your own sort of interpretation to it or or think about it or really like dig into it and feel affected by it i think is what makes something really special mm-hmm. uh, i think eraserhead and a lot of david lynch's work but especially eraserhead really has that that sort of inspiration and droves absolutely uh so yeah we're getting to the Let's wrap this up, man. Like, yeah, we just hit the yeah. we just hit about the hour mark. Do you have any closing remarks on Eraserhead or David Lynch as a whole? I feel like I just hit it. I mean, we I were think just that was that was it. <laughs> yeah, we were just uh, really going over everything. I'm done with my coffee. How's your coffee looking? My coffee is empty. All right, that's it. We got to go get some more coffee. Um, yep. So, Jack, thank you so much for talking to me about this. This was great. Uh, we should do some more Lynch stuff too. Maybe a Mulholland Drive episode, and I can kind of work this yeah. stuff out. I think you should watch Inland Empire. I wanted to I think watch I that, want to do Inland but Empire. the three-hour-long kind of run, I was kind of like, I definitely want to watch Dune and Eraserhead, obviously, and then I want to watch something else. And it really just got to a point, I was going to try and toss on The Elephant Man again, I was going to try and toss on Inland Empire, and I was just kind of like, I'm getting ready for another uh, podcast with a uh, uh, local sex pot, uh, Tim Irwin, we're doing a, a Michael Mann episode where we're talking about okay. a bunch of Michael Mann movies. So I have to rewatch those. So I was just kind of like getting caught up. And I was also kind of like, let's just keep everything pre Twin Peaks. Like, and that sure. way I kind of can come at it from that point of view. Because even if I tried to talk about something like Mulholland Drive or Inland Empire, things I'm aware of and have seen, um, I, I don't have any opinions worth noting on them. Because I probably don't even believe those opinions anymore if I were to rewatch it. Right. Um, I think I think if you go Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, Inland Empire, mm-hmm. I think that trio would really make a good discussion because I think they, they share a lot of thematic um, overlap yeah. consistency there. He's he's hitting a lot of like similar stuff with that with those movies. Yeah. So. yeah maybe we could do some like we kind of talked about a lot of his earlier stuff with this and, and including Twin Peaks. Maybe next time we can go even weirder and hey maybe next time we do it who knows maybe i'll have crushed season two and now i'm just holding off on the return because you got to take your breaks when you're re-watching older shows you gotta take your breaks you do not go from season two to season three like a baby you don't do it that's a that's a thing monsters do you wait at least 24 hours at least watching season two is like eating your veggies except if your veggies were steamed a week ago and then you have to eat them uh like steamed week old broccoli Mm -hmm. is season two of twin peaks with maybe like a few like 
sprinklings of like some parmesan okay. on there like a little bit of like there's some okay stuff but you get some gelato at the end of it which is the return like if you can get which through the, the steam yes. stuff you have to Correct. get that nutrient in your body so you have context y- you know what you have to do it it's vegetable context you can't skip it you can't skip yeah it. you have to there someone needs to take someone needs to be a hero and cut season two of twin peaks down to like a tight 10 episode run mm-hmm. like that would be you could do it there's so much chaff in there that you could just <laughs> toss right out the window yes <laughs> it's good yes uh well all right guys uh, thanks so much for listening um remember to rate review subscribe thanks for being a member and checking this out if you are listening to this on its initial run behind our cash fence for our for our exclusive content um there's other podcasts that you can check out on our main feeds, such as Hot Takes, Cathode Raycast, Trikai 9, loads of cool stuff. And uh, we also have like a bunch of really cool videos and essays coming up on both our public and uh, exclusive content feed. Uh, remember to sign up for a newsletter, do all that stuff. Follow us on Instagram at story underscore screen underscore beacon and at Twitter at story underscore screen. Find us on Facebook for all of our fun events and Hopefully, once the theater opens, uh, if you're listening to this in the future and the theater is still uh, there, uh, come and watch a movie with us and chill. I definitely am thinking about doing a uh, a nice Lynch marathon uh, once we kind of get up there. It's it's going to be repertory time, baby. We're going to be getting in there. I I just found out that Disney is probably uh, opening up their entire vault temporarily. What? Yeah, like this is the whole thing where you just kind of like, Fuck here it. we go. Yeah, all right. Gonna watch. I can't gonna wait. watch Toy Story in 4K, baby, on the big screen. I can't, can't wait to sit in those seats again. They're very comfortable. All right, uh, we hope you guys are doing good. Thank you so much for listening, Jack. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Awesome. All right, and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Later.